welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. This is episode five, Looking in the Mirror. It features the Arendt Center's founder and director, Roger Berkowitz, in conversation with Jerome Cohn, a political thinker, the literary executor for Hannah Arendt, and the editor of many volumes of Arendt's posthumous works, including Thinking Without a Bannister, The Jewish Writings, Essays in Understanding, and Responsibility and Judgment. Jerry Cohn was Hannah Arendt's last research assistant while a graduate student at the New School for Social Research. Both Cohn and Berkowitz were jointly awarded the Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thinking by the Heinrich Böll Foundation and the city of Bremen in 2019. My name is Roger Berkowitz, and I'm thrilled here to have on the phone with me Jerry Cohn. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm well, Roger. Thank you. So where are you spending your time during the coronavirus pandemic of 2020? I'm out on the east, eastern Long Island on the North Fork, where it's very quiet. To tell you the truth, it's pretty isolated all the time. It's one of the reasons I came out here. And so it's more isolated now, to be sure. But perhaps I'm a little bit more used to it. I know I'm more used to it than when I lived in the city, which I did for many, many years. Right. How are you finding the time? Are you are you finding this to be a strange time? Or is this sort of like life goes on as it normally goes on for you? I have to say so far, and I know I'm very fortunate to be able to say this, that this isolation has made me think very hard about our mutually interested, about Hannah Arendt. I'm that old, you know, about my first encounters with her in books, in lecture halls, in seminar rooms, in becoming acquainted with her rather closely in the last seven or eight years of her life and also in imagining her. And I want to say that this experience for me, neither hopeful or despairing, what it seems to me to evade is the danger that in the emptiness of isolation, we abetted by our technology, in in our isolation and abetted by our technology, attempt to import the busyness of our social lives, former social lives, into being alone. I think there are so many examples of this that one encounters in the news and the television in general, and that thereby we may be missing one of those rare moments, as Aaron calls them, when thinking may prevent catastrophes. That's an odd thing maybe to say at this point, but I think I can say it to you because we both have studied and learned from Hannah Arendt. And I don't know if you agree with me about this, but to me, perhaps her diarist diagnosis of the modern world, of our world, well, maybe we're on postmodern world now, but certainly up to her time, is of the intrusion into it of society and the social 
sphere, as she calls it. Those words have social, society, and so forth have multiple meanings for Aaron. But in every case, as far as I know, they tend to occlude the distinction she draws between private and public realms. The sphere overshadows, so to speak, the realms. Our current plague has made that clearer and more meaningful, at least to me, than before. I call it a plague. A plague I always associated with rats, but I looked it up and it had nothing to do with With rats. It's just a really striking blow. I like the word plague better than pandemic, actually. Okay. I mean, it strikes me that you're absolutely right that in past plagues, which were truly striking blows and awful, what made them catastrophes and awful was the unbelievable isolation that they imposed upon people. And in a way, out of that catastrophe, there was a chance, an opportunity for something, as you know, I think what you're saying, it's some solitude or thinking to happen. And in some ways, what this plague is showing us is that even a plague doesn't isolate us, doesn't allow us to escape from, I think, what you're calling the social realm. Is that what you have in mind? Yes, it is quite a lot like that. If I look in a mirror today, I see the image of the social in all its aspects. I see that in my own face, my own reflection. And perhaps foremost is its expropriation of both private and public, or both places in the world, in short, our place in the world, our own places in the world, with its consequence of our alienation from the world. That's what stares back at me when we seek our own most image in a looking glass. At last. At last, that's what stares back. That's new for me. That's what this isolation has given me, actually. This more intense isolation than, than that isolation in which I live partially most of the time anyway. One way to put it is that we learn from Arendt that the private and public realms, when they exist, are both distinct from each other and also inseparably linked to each other or related to each other. I would say to me that each is the condition without which the other is impossible, the condition sine qua non, if you will, of the other. You understand social isolation and personal solidarity is what we can experience today. That point, that's the way I put it to myself. Social isolation and personal solidarity. When you say personal solidarity, do you mean uh, coming to terms with oneself or being together with oneself? How do you understand Uh, that? That we can get into, Roger, because that is certainly part of it. But what I primarily mean by personal solidarity is reflecting on other people, on people you know, on your friends, out of a social context, out of that, because socially we're isolated. You and I 
can't meet. Let's put it that way. But I can think about you. And that's what I mean by a personal solidarity. I feel that very much for you right now. And down the line, maybe in the future, will lie the rediscovery of politics. If we rediscover personal solidarity, possibly we can rediscover, because of their intimate relation, public solidarity. That would depend on the reanimation, let's say, of public spirit. And that's another thing. That's my answer to what you just said. I can enlarge on that if you want. I, I Indeed, I would sort of like to talk about this in contrast to Hannah Arendt's own great teacher, Martin Heidegger. If we could do that for a moment. Go ahead, Jerry. That would be great. There's a sentence by one of my favorite writers called uh, Stondal, in which he says, to have firmness of character is to have experienced the effect of others on yourself, so others are necessary. Now, that partially explains a lot to me about Hannah's teacher, Martin Heidegger. He lived his own version of social isolation in order that he might devote his life to thinking. And, of course, to thinking, letting be. Heidegger, a profound reader of Greek philosophy and poetry, never saw beyond the tragic aspect of the public realm, I believe, lacking entirely the sense of joy that the haphazardness, the chance and choice which also even Kant, Kant's favorite Kant, saw as foolishness. The chance and choice of appearing and acting in the public realm, less wise than Plato, Heidegger saw only the philosophic benefits of reordering the social sphere, however drastically, into something incomparably more destructive than any previous tragic event. In other words, I like Arendt's critique of Heidegger. I don't like this saying that his work, as, some, as you know some people have done, should be taken out of the philosophy section of a library and put in the Nazi section. I don't like that at all. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's accurate. I think what Arendt said about Heidegger to me, has the ring of authenticity. And by what she said about Heidegger, you mean that he made a mistake? Or what do you mean when you said what she said about him? What I mean is, is what I try to say, but let me say it again, that, that the public realm, the realm of chance and choice, he shunned, he shunned, he didn't understand it. He thought it only influenced very much by Greek drama, I believe, Greek poetry, that it led to tragedy. There was none of of the joy or the solidarity, public solidarity at all. I think I can explain that by turning for a moment to what Arendt writes about the French poet René Char, who thought in the French resistance to the Nazis 
in the Second World War, towards the end of the war. He kept a book of aphorisms that he wrote in every day and never after the war. This was a very important book. It, it has in English a quite marvelous title, Hypnos, that is sleep itself, waking. Hypnos waking. And what he, what he writes about in hiding in caves, which he and the other resistance fighters, known as Makivar, had to do. They had to hide not only from their enemies, the Nazis, but also from their own people, the French, collaborators with the Nazis, which was most of France. It was in the darkness of hiding in caves. And this is what something what I mean by personal solidarity today. It was in that darkness that he says he discovered a citadel of friendship in which he and his fellows spoke in images that were comprehensible only to themselves. Within our darkness, Shar says, we discovered a hidden treasure which Shar, by which Shar, that hidden treasure, is their freedom, or more accurately, their freedom to be free. He likens that freedom to an enigma, enigma of a flame that burns unseen for centuries. Absent the experience of freedom, the flame burns. Its flame burns unseen, and that is its enigma. I'm sorry, Roger. No, I think that's wonderful, Jerry. I mean, it strikes me that the question that you're raising, maybe not as a question, but for me, it's a question is to what extent what you're calling personal solidarity, the fact that you feel solidarity for your friends, that René Char felt solidarity for his friends, is transferable to a more public solidarity. And Arendt talks about this somewhat similarly in the end of her book on revolution, where she talks about islands of freedom and the idea that even if most people don't have this kind of feeling of the treasure that Rene Schauch had or that people in a deliberative body have. The fact that there are these islands of freedom keeps the, the flame of freedom lit and allows it to continue to inspire people. But I guess the question is, how does one expand a personal solidarity for one's friends and one's acquaintances, which is a kind of private solidarity? How does one expand that to the public? And I mean, one sees that to some degrees in doctors who are volunteering to come across the country and serve in hospitals uh, in New York and, and elsewhere. I'm wondering if that's the way you see this question or not. Well, that's a very good analogy. I think these, I spoke to my doctor the other day who was in the midst of this and we only spoke on the phone and uh, I told him how highly I thought of him and what he was doing. And uh, he's a friend. Uh, and um, and he poo-pooed that. He poo-pooed that. He said, Jerry, I'm doing my job, period. So that is, I think, very much what I mean. People are not going to, you know, it's not occasion to be proud of yourself 
in this uh, solid area. It's not exclusive. It's it's aspect that one experiences today in isolation is personal, I think. But the solidarity itself is certainly got wider spread, say, as if it were a bird with wings, than just between what we call close associates and close friends. There was something I wanted to say that I think is very important in this that we also can realize perhaps in our social isolation. And that is what Arendt has to say about thinking in its non-cognitive and non-specialized sense as simply a need of human life. The, the, she calls it the actualization of the difference given in consciousness. She's not interested, I think, in solving the problem of consciousness, which we hear about so much. For her, it is something given to us as human beings. Anyway, that kind of thinking she goes on to say, is not a prerogative of the few, but an ever-present faculty of everybody. And by the same token, inability to think is not the prerogative of those many whom, I'm quoting right now, of those many who lack brain power, but the ever-present possibility for everybody, scientists, scholars, technicians, and other specialists in mental enterprises not included. Do you see amongst people in private or public that you're encountering now an increase in that kind of thinking? Or, or as you sort of suggested maybe at the beginning, that in fact people are seeking out busyness so much that it's almost even less? Or how do you imagine this impacting the quality of thought? I agree with what I understood you to say, Roger, that no, it's importing the busyness which our technology allows us to do into our isolation that what we seem to be, and I think it's it's such a missed opportunity. We seem to be trying to make our isolation social. Although, I mean, it's in a way a contradiction in terms. We are socially isolated, but we're trying to make that isolation as social as it's possible to be but with, all our, with all our means to do that. So I agree with you. Do I think what I'm talking about is widespread? I have no way of knowing. I have some evidence that it is. So, so some evidence from what people have written to me. I have a friend in Rome. And we've been corresponding about the emptiness of Rome, a city I love and know quite well. And I sent her a video of the Piazza Navona, which is very near where she lives. She doesn't live in the Piazza, but near it. And it was absolutely empty. It is one of the most great architectural places in the world. If you can see because when you're there, when you're able to be there, it's so always full of people and clowns and fire eaters and God knows what, hawkers of this, that, and the other thing, and just people. Now it's empty. And there was a beautiful piece of music. 
Sundoro from Torondo. And the streets were absolutely empty. You could see this architectural marvel plain. And she wrote to me, my friend who lives nearby, we've been talking about this, and I, I sent her that picture. And she wrote back that she said, my God, Jerry, maybe when you see what was, which we haven't been able to see for years and years and years, maybe again, we'll have a city. That is the sort of thing I mean. Maybe again, we'll have a city. That is not a likelihood, not at all. It is a potentiality, it seems to me, in what we are experiencing. Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> we are experiencing uh, an emptiness. And it sounds like you are experiencing it in some way in the middle of the country and the countryside. What are you finding yourself doing? Are you reading? Are you looking in the mirror? How are you, how are you finding? <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time looking in the mirror, Roger, but I, <laughs> that was meant to be, uh, I guess, a metaphor. But um, I do read. What do you find yourself reading these days? A lot of poetry, actually. I'm not very adventurous in poetry. I reread poetry and I look up whole bits and snatches of poetry that I that are in my in my head, sort of stuck there permanently, I think, uh, relatively permanently. And I look them up, the whole poem sometimes on Google. I do it's the easiest way to find a poem today if you don't have all your books around you. And I fortunately most of my books are in New York, so I, I don't have a lot out of everything I need out here. But I also, I read articles. I read, well, let me tell you about one that I wrote. And it was in the New Yorker, which comes out here, that David Remnick, the editor, he wrote in an editorial, that first thing, the talk of the town, whatever it's called. And he wrote this sentence. He wrote, the human need for solidarity is frustrated by the need for social distancing. I take great exception to that. It's what I think the sort of thing you were referring to, but I take exception to that. And to to the quotation from one from Aaron, this part, I'm going to again read from her. At the end of the first edition of Origins of Totalitarianism, which is not readily available today, well, it is in one place. There is a 2004 edition of, of the Origins that Shokin brought out in which it's in, but it's in none of the other editions except the first. There are rights in the first edition for those who were expelled from humanity need the solidarity of all men to assure them of their rightful place in man's enduring chronicle. These are the last words of the book. At least we can cry out to each one of those who rightly is in despair, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Now that last bit, do thyself no harm, for we are all here, is a quotation from St. Paul in the book of Acts, 1628. And just slightly 
before she ends with that, she writes, Neo-humanists, which I suppose David Remnick is one, in their understandable yearning for the stable world of the past, when law and order were given entities, and in their vain efforts to reestablish such stability by making man the measure of all things human, have confused the issue, which is the choice, the choice between resentment and gratitude as basic possible modern attitudes and increased the fear of man, this most unknown and most unpredictable being on earth. Generally speaking, such gratitude expects nothing except, in the words of William Faulkner, one's own anonymous chance to perform something passionate and brave and austere, not just in, but into man's enduring chronicle, in gratitude for the gift of one's time in it. In the sphere of politics, gratitude, it seems to me, implies very strongly that we are not alone. We can reconcile ourselves to the variety of mankind, to the differences between human beings, which are frightening precisely because of the essential equality of rights of all men and our consequent responsibility for all deeds and misdeeds committed by people different from ourselves. Arendt, it seems to me, is the first person who has written to me meaningfully about responsibility. She takes it literally as the ability, our ability, to respond. When she speaks of responsibility, that's what she means. An ability we have, a choice, a chance. And that's what it seems to me so many doctors have done, and they don't want any gratitude for In fact, it seems what she's saying is that we can't resent this world that's been given to us. We must be thankful and have gratitude for it. Uh, We must love this world for giving us the chance to act in it, in spite of it, and for giving us the chance to act in it in ways that will be meaningful. And it's that turn to meaning, right, which is at the very core of what she thinks thinking is about. Exactly, Roger. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I mean, for her, thinking is different. It doesn't lead to truth. It leads to meaning. It leads to asking what is meaningful for us. It strikes me that meaning is what, for Arendt, is the aim of thinking, uh, not truth. And one of the problems that we are having now, it seems, in our response to the plague is that we don't have public figures articulating for us the meaning of what this is. People are all obsessed about the truth, the facts, how to survive it, how to live. But very few people are trying or yet, and maybe it's too early, able to have the space to think and say, what will we take? What, what is important now that we be doing? And not just about going back to normal, as you know, it suggests David Rednick suggests in the in the quote you read, but what 
do we want to bring out of this and in some way be grateful for that it shows us about ourselves? Well said. By the way, that is a very widespread belief, I believe, what Remnick expresses. But I think people who do believe that should pay a little attention to the wit and wisdom of one Karl Marx, who said when a, in his wonderful journal, when the historical tragedy repeats itself the second time around, which is, it seems to me, what, what those people who want to restore the past do want, they'll bring to me that America before with the occlusion of privacy and publicity, I'd say it like that, privacy and publicity, with the occlusion of that, of the private and public realms, when it comes back, comes not as tragedy, but as a farce, which in our case, I suppose, in the 20th century, in Hannah Arendt's case, the emblem would not be a swastika, but a roll of toilet paper. And I think, in a way, I hope that that speaks to what you're saying. There is one more thing in this trying time. One thing is clear, and that is that we are, are, as St. Paul said, all in this together. Perhaps we may agree that there is a potentiality, however faint it may be, within personal solidarity between friends, between persons, may be possible to see another different image in a mirror, which does not reflect the failures of society, which Aaron counts and recounts relentlessly, but rather of the possibility of our return to the warmth of enclosure of personal solidarity with others who, in one way or another, are distant. And further, that may become, as it has only rarely in human history, very, very rarely ever, the condition of political solidarity, of the reanimation of public spirit in the binding might of the public realm. Roger, there's one other thing I'd like to say that, that it was what you said you suggested to me. And that's what Karen talks about in this image, this parallelogram of forces, which he writes about first in the preface to one of the great passages in Aaron's writing, I think the preface to, or prologue, she calls it, between past and future. And also she goes back to it, she visits it again, not exactly the same way, in towards the end of her thinking volume of the life of the mind. You know, the, the, the law, it's a physical law, the parallelogram of forces, it's called in what it means is that when two vectors come and clash, there is a third vector that is an angle between the other two. It's a diagonal vector, which is as endless as the beginning of the other two vectors, which Aaron likens to the past coming forward and pushing forward and the future pushing back, clashing, and upright stands this man 
who thinks. And that diagonal vector has no end in either sense of the word. It has no end in view, and it has no telos. It is the creation of meaning, as you said, not of truth. And to me, the entire metaphor reveals only mental activity, as Aaron says. But that activity for Aaron is always instigated by and prevents catastrophes by remaining attached to experience whatever it may be, including hours of isolation today in the world. I hope that was appropriate at the end to what you were saying. I think it is, and I think it's a great place for us to end. So thank you. Okay, Roger. Thank you very much, Jerry. Um, that was great. Thank you, Roger. Thank you very, very much, and keep well. You too. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Professor Jerry Cohn. If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more, all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.